Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Yeah? Good. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, give yourselves a hand. Yes. Welcome. It's a good day to be at church. It's a half-hearted hand, but it, it counts. It's all good. Man, we are so glad to have you guys here with us. We are in week two of our series, Whatever, last week. Sean did an incredible job. He's talking about how we can face whatever circumstances come our way. And this week, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter two, and we're going to be talking about how we can deal with whatever in our relationships, right? And so relationships, I love relationships, man. I got a lot of relationships. I love people. I love meeting new people. And uh, I like to be online. You guys like to be online. You like to meet people online, social media. It's cool. It's fun. We embrace it as a church. You know, we, we like social media. As a matter of fact, one of the best ways to stay up to date at our church is to follow us on social media because that's where we kind of put out all the info. So yeah, so we've embraced it, man. I love to get online. But here's the thing. You know, relationships can have challenges as well, right? And especially relationships online can have challenges, right? Because, I mean, what, what happens online? I mean, we are the filter generation, right? We, we know how to present ourselves in such a way that we can look as perfect as possible. And so, yeah, we, we're really, really good at that. But one of the things you don't want to do when you get online is you don't want to read through the comment section, okay? You just stay away from that, okay? That's where you get into the danger zone. There's dangerous things if you start to look at the comments section. Only bad things will follow. But here's the thing, man. We, we get really good at filtering ourselves online. We're really good. I mean, we know how to post pictures with such perfection, clarity, filter, all that stuff, and we make them perfect. And yet, when you think about it, the way that we interact with each other online, we filter ourselves less, don't we? And so we've filtered our posts more, but we filtered our responses less. And so what happens oftentimes is we hurt one another, and relationships can be broken. Sometimes people that we are very close with, something can happen, either online or in real life not online, not a virtual relationship, where we can be hurt and we can get broken. But I think God has some really cool things to say to us about the purpose and the intention of relationships. And we're going to talk about that this morning, how relationships can be a powerful tool to help us connect with God. So let me, let me ask you a question. One of the words that we oftentimes use in our interactions with each other is the word whatever, right? It's come to describe in many of the interactions that we have with each other and online. As a matter of fact, if you go to Instagram right now and you type in and you search the hashtag whatever, then you'll probably come up with somewhere around, let me see if I've got it right, 2,615,913 hits on the word whatever. So we're using it a lot. By show of hands, this is my question. How many of you have heard the word whatever from your kids? Let's be honest here. We're all friends. Okay, a few of you. Half of you, uh, I've got, got a concept on this. Half of you who are honest, like those are the ones, there's those parents who have heard it and there's those parents who will hear it from their kids, right? Your just kids aren't old enough to say it. And sometimes it's not necessarily a bad thing. I asked my daughter, Sophia, she said the word whatever to me a couple times. I won't go into details because, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself or her in front of you. But I will, I will say, I did ask her, okay, Sophie, when you said whatever, like, what, what do you mean when you said whatever? And she said, well, dad, it means different things at different times. 
And I thought, wow, Sophie, that's very diplomatic of you, 10-year-old. Uh, I didn't raise a fool. My kid's a smart kid, so she's smart. As a matter of fact, um, I told her I was going to be telling you that, so she probably very much filtered what she was going to say. But I did get into a little bit more deeper and asked her more questions. And so what, what do we mean? What do we mean when we say the word whatever? Well, we mean a lot of things, don't we? We mean it to mean quite a few things at once, maybe. Um, so some of the ways that I've researched this word, and these are some things that I think we mean when we say the word whatever. I'm no longer interested in this conversation. Like this conversation's finished. I'm done. Whatever. Right? That's one way. Maybe sometimes it's short for whatever you want. Okay. I, I'm not, I don't have an opinion here. Whatever you want, whatever. That's fine. Or possibly, and I think maybe most often it probably means I don't even care about this. Whatever. I do not care. Okay. And then my favorite is I just realized that I lost the argument and I need a way out, right? And that's my favorite use of the word, whatever, I'm out of here. Yeah, I just lost, so I got to peace out and find an exit strategy. But interestingly enough, okay, I, I was looking at Urban Dictionary for a, uh, for a definition here. Don't, don't do that, by the way. I don't recommend looking at Urban Dictionary for anything. But I, I trolled a little bit, got down to the comment section, I'm just kidding. and I looked up what Urban Dictionary says, whatever means, and it says this, okay? Um, this is a word all too often used by Americans to connote a feeling of apathy. Very educational, right, from Urban Dictionary. No, not expected. But then listen to this. This is very interesting, what Urban Dictionary has to say. The fact that it's used in almost every sentence is not as alarming to many as it should be. And there you have it, guys. It's happened. We have managed to alarm Urban Dictionary. Do you understand the implications of this, right? Urban Dictionary is alarmed. We might as well go ahead and end the world right now because this is a big deal. And so we, whatever one another and whatever happens in our relationships, a lot. But you know what? God wants more out of us. And so in Philippians 2, we're going to take a look at a passage in which the Philippian church, Paul is speaking to the Philippian church, and he's letting them know, hey, look, something has happened to your relationships. Maybe I can even say this. Maybe the Philippians had begun to whatever one another, okay? They'd begun to see one another with contempt. They'd begun to say, I don't even know if I care. And so Paul is speaking directly to relationships, broken relationships, into the Philippian church. And I think he's going to have some pretty incredible things to tell us this morning. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the passage. Father God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, Lord, for your truth. We ask you to open our hearts this morning. Lord, may we see your truth. Lord, may we be changed by this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to turn over there. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. So it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Let's pause right there. Paul is painting the Christian ideal for what relationships are all about. Any tenderness and compassion, any joy, 
He's giving the, the Philippian church an idea of what the Christian ideal is when it comes to relationships. And then he, has, he says two things that are very important. He says, I want you to be of one spirit and of one mind. One spirit and one mind. Now, what on earth could this mean, Paul? What are you saying, one mind? Because when I think about my relationship, like, for example, with my wife... Man, we aren't on of one, we weren't of one mind about quite a few things, right? I mean, we think differently about stuff. I mean, here's a few examples. My wife likes the beach. I like the mountains, right? My wife likes no beard. I like a beard, right? All right? Am I right, guys? My wife likes no whip. I mean, likes whip. I like no whip. I'm like a no whip kind of a guy. My wife likes chick flicks and romantic comedies. I like action films. Somehow, we've managed to compromise with The Walking Dead. I have no idea how. I'm still confused about that. I don't know how that works, right? I mean, we're of two minds about things. My wife, she likes to get long massages. I like what comes after the massage. We're of two different minds on these things. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I think you do. It's all in the covenant, guys. The covenant is good of marriage. It's important. Get married if you're not married. It's wonderful. So we don't agree on everything, right? So what could Paul be saying here? We, he wants us to be of one mind, one spirit. Well, he tells us in the very next phrase, look down in your passage. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. These are two very important words, okay? We're going to unpack these words a little bit because, you know, you, know, you kind of like, it's, these aren't common words that we use every day. Okay, selfish ambition is uh, not extremely helpful. It just means divisive. So don't be divisive. That's important, right? We, want to, we don't want to divide one another. But vain conceit, we're going to take a look at this word. This is an interesting word. It actually comes from two root words, right? You guys know etymology, right? You remember your Latin, whatever. But, but this is Greek, and so the two root words, I'm just going to tell you, really, you won't go into it, but they mean, they mean empty, to empty yourself, and then the second one is glory, okay? So to empty yourself of glory, that's what Paul is getting at. So what does it mean to be characterized by being glory empty? Well, it means to be hungry for honor, hungry for respect, hungry for assurance, because we just don't feel like we matter, like we're important. That's what it means to have vain conceit. It's to be glory empty. It's to be devoid of of honor. So here's the thing. We use that term quite a bit, glory, right? I mean, maybe you, in Christian circles, we use this term quite a bit. Maybe you're here and you have no concept of what that is. Maybe you're a Christian and you're like, you know what? I'd kind of like a refresher on what glory even is. So I began to think about this. I think if I was to, to describe the word glory in, a, in one word, I would just say, wow, wow. That's what glory is. We said it earlier when we were singing. I stand in awe of you. Honor, respect. That's what glory is. We were created with glory. You see, God made us in his image. He made us to look like him. In the very beginning, God said, I am going to create man in my image. And he gave us glory and honor. But something happened. 
Something happened as a result of sin. And because sin entered into the world through the choice of humanity, we have faded. Our glory has fallen. We have become less. But we were made to never be forgotten. And that's the interesting thing about glory, is that glory has to come from outside of us. We don't inherently have it in us because of sin, and so we have to get it from another source. And so how do we do that? We want to live forever. I was uh, attending an internet safety seminar one time. You guys ever been to one of those? Okay, so I don't remember a whole lot from that. Very cool, though, like great ideas, uh, good, good cautions on how to be smart online. Um, but the only thing I remember from the internet safety seminar was the phrase, everything is public and permanent. That's the only thing I really remember. And so when you think about posting online, just think no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what room or subroom or whatever, everything is public and permanent, right? So that's kind of terrifying, you know, for maybe a teenager or somebody who's like, you know, you're like, everything is public. Yeah, everything is public and permanent, right? But then I begin to think about that too. Like, as you think that through, what does that mean for us? Wait, I just get to put something online and it's there forever? That's amazing. I'm going to endure. I'm going to live forever. And that's oftentimes what we think when we're posting online is this is the way that I will give my legacy. I'm going to tell the world and I'm going to be able to live forever. But you know what? Even though people can tell us, you're good, that's a great post, I'm not going to forget you, that is not going to do the job. It's not going to fill us up. And here's the problem. Becoming obsessed about what others think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. Becoming obsessed about what others think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. What are we talking about here? What, what is this subject? It's one word, pride, right? It's the word pride. Or as Terrell Owens likes to put it, I love me some me, right? We all got the me disease. We know how to put ourselves forward. I know what I like. I don't have to ask anybody. I don't have to do a poll. I know what I like. I'm just going to go get it. And what we're talking about is pride. What is it? What really is pride? Okay, we, that's another word, word, excuse me, that we use in Christian circles. What does pride actually mean? Well, it's actually a refusal to let God be God. That's what pride is. It's a refusal to let God be God. We want to grab God's status for ourselves. Pride is the grand illusion that we can be our own source of good. You see, what does pride do? Okay, pride leads us to think about our relationships differently. Pride leads us to think about people as a means to an end. Let me explain that. We begin to ask the question, how can, I, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I count? And so we begin to see other people as a means to an end. Here's another thing that happens. If we have pride, we can't truly celebrate other people's accomplishments. We can't truly take joy in the abilities of other people. Why? 
because we can only enjoy something if we have more of it than the next person. That's the way pride works. It's, it only allows you to enjoy something when you have more of it than the next person. And so all these good things, all these wonderful things that God has given us, things like wealth, things like intelligence, things like ability, like athletic ability, or, or some other kind of, of, of ability that you might have in your job, right? All these things, good looks, you know, smart, all that. All of it then becomes perverted because it's not about losing those things. It's about, I have to have more wealth than the next person, or I have to have more intelligence than this person, or I have to be better than that person, or I have to have more, you know, more athletic ability than this guy or that girl. And it's a never-ending cycle because pride constantly forces us to compare ourselves to one another. Pride is the pleasure of being above the rest. We're driven by comparisons. We have an overwhelming awareness of self. And that can be inferior. I feel inferior to everybody. Or that can be, I can, I can feel superior to everybody. It's either side. That's the way pride works. It's an overwhelming awareness of self. And Paul speaks to it here in verse 7. He says, rather, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse, uh, where am I at? Screen's got my back. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In humility, value others above yourselves. You see, pride leads us to use people. Humility leads us to love people. Pride leads us to use people. Humility leads us to love people. And friends, this is the difference in relationships that we're talking about. This is the key. What is humility? Another word, what is humility? Well, in the first century, it meant gentle, modest, deferential. Okay, that's what humility meant. And as a matter of fact, when Paul was using this term, during the time that he was using this term, this was not like it is today in our Christian circles, oh, you're so humble, you know, like good for you, you're so humble. Like that was not the way that it was seen. During Paul's day, it was very much a derogatory term. They never used it to compliment anybody. It was like a diss. It's like a, it was like a, it wasn't a, it was like when you wanted to make fun of somebody, then you would call them humble. Why? Because of the way that that culture functioned, I mean, this an, it's an old society, they, they, and they valued strength, they valued stability, and that was based on fear. You, you'd rather be respected than loved, and your respect came through conquest. And so here in the Bible, we have a total worldview shift. I mean, the Bible uses the word humility 270 times. And so this is a total worldview shift, and let's be honest. That old culture of fear and respect based on stability, based on scare tactics, based on power, that's still at play today, isn't it? It's still at work today. And so therefore, Christian humility is still a radical going against the grain of the culture. It's becoming more and more difficult to be humble. Let's be honest. I mean, think about the implications, right, for your job, for your relationships. I mean... It seems like if you practice this consistently, you won't survive. 
And yet, this is what Jesus calls us to as a Christian community. So how important is humility? Well, uh, think about it this way. Let's think about the gospel for a minute. Let's say you come to God and you say, I want a relationship with you, God. Look at all the things that I've done for you. Look at my accomplishments, God. Check out what I have done. Behold. God's going to turn away from you. He's going to say, look, you don't know who I am, right? You don't, you don't know who you are. But if you come to the Lord and say, Lord, I repent. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I don't deserve it. I have no merit that would grant me pleasure and to gain access and favor by you. I am saved by your grace and your grace alone. That's humility. And so what we see that the front door to the gospel is humility. And there, there is no Christian change apart from humility. There is no doing things differently because God isn't wanted to improve who you are. He wants to totally restore you. We're talking about complete and total heart transformation, right? Up becomes down, down becomes up. This is a total revolution of the way that we see ourselves, our life, and the world. And that's what we're going to talk about because humility, here's the interesting thing about humility is that you can't really even work on it directly. And here's what I mean by that. It's a byproduct of something else. Humility is something more than just wanting to work on your humility, right? I mean, let's just be honest here. The more and more we talk about this here today, this morning, the less and less humble we've actually become, right? Because we're focusing on it. It's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to be more humble. But to be honest, what mo usually motivates us to look more humble is not looking prideful. And so we're still trying to compare ourselves with each other. And so humility has to be about something else. It has to be about wanting something else more. It's about wanting Jesus Christ. Humility is a byproduct of wanting Jesus, of worshiping Jesus, of knowing Jesus, of wanting more of Jesus, and then beginning to even think like Jesus. And that's the power of what God wants to give us. He wants to, us to have the mindset of Jesus Christ. Look down here at verse four and five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset at, as Christ Jesus. The same mindset. What does that mean? Well, here's what I want to tell you about the mindset of Jesus Christ. And this is the key for, this is like the, the linchpin of the whole sermon right here. Because if we can figure out how to think like Jesus thought, we'll be able to love like Jesus loved. If we can learn how to think like Jesus thought, we'll be able to love like Jesus loved. You see, God is more concerned with your thinking than your pleasure. He's more, more concerned about how we think, how we see ourselves, how we see the world than giving us what we want. Right thinking leads to right living. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. This is called, in, in, the, in the text, it uses the word mindset, okay? 
So what is a mindset? This is a way that you see the whole world, right? And so what is a shift of mindset? Let me give you an example of some ways that God has changed my thinking about a few things, all right? One of the things that he's shifted in my thinking is my leadership increases as my workload increases, right? And so I get more leadership the harder that I work. So I just got to work harder than everybody else and my leadership will grow. Here's the mind shift. Here's the way that I've changed my thinking. What? My leadership grows as my focus grows. So the better I understand who I am and what God has called me specifically to do, that's what grows my leadership. That's a mind shift. That's a new way of thinking. It's a totally different way of doing things. It changes all of your actions thereafter. Here's another mind shift. Things are more important than people. And let me tell you how that worked its way out in my life. I used to believe that in order to be liked, I had to keep a clean and tidy house. Then I had four children. And everything changed for me, right? Because I had to make a decision, right? I had to make a decision. Which is more important? Is it more important for me to keep a house clean? Or is it more important for me to love my kids, And so let me tell you something. You may come over to my house, and you're all welcome to come over to my house, not at the same time. But if you may come over to my house, and you may see the dishes full in the sink, dirty, and you just need to know that what I'm saying to you is I love you more than my things, right? Or I just wasn't, you know, had the time to clean the dishes. I don't know. But either way, people are more important than things, right? Things are more important than people. And that's a mind shift. It's a different way of thinking. We have to change our thinking about how we interact in our relationships. That's what I'm telling you here today. If we can think like Jesus thought, we'll be able to love like Jesus loved. So here's the question. How did Jesus think? Well, it tells us in verse 6. Let's look at it together. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That's how we think like Jesus thought. He made himself nothing. It's an interesting word here, word phrase. He made himself nothing. It means he emptied himself. That's literally what it, what it means. Jesus emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? What did Jesus empty himself of? His deity? No. He, he kept his godness. He didn't lose that. What did he empty? His glory. You see, J- Jesus gave up his glory to come to earth and live as a man. He emptied himself. He gave up his beauty. He gave up his crown. He gave up heaven. He gave up the right to be with God fully. He gave up the wow factor so that he could come to earth for you and for me and give up his life so that every man, woman, and child who ever lived could have the gates of heaven flung wide open. We have to enter the same way that Jesus did. We have to get into heaven the same way Jesus did. And how is that? I said it before, the way up is down. Jesus calls us to go downward. 
How did Jesus get back to heaven? The way up is down. The way to be truly rich is to give away. The way to truly rule is to serve. That's the way of Jesus. That's how we think like Jesus thought. Interesting word, this this idea of Jesus emptied himself. Okay? It's literally the same root word that Paul uses beforehand when he talks about vain conceit, right? Where it would be glory empty. Remember that? It's the same word. Jesus emptied himself. Kendosis, it's the exact same word. So Paul knows what he's doing here, right? Paul is calling us to something. Vain conceit means that your glory empty. And you feel that. Jesus chose to empty himself of his glory so that he could bring us back to glory in God. That's incredible. Jesus had glory. He had the Father. He had every need that he ever could possibly have met in the Father. He gave up his glory for us. And in that, he modeled for us the thinking that we're to have in all of our relationships. And, the greatest, and that's this, the greatest glory of all is to give away your glory for someone else. Because that's what Jesus did for us. The greatest glory of all is to give your glory away for someone else. That's the thing about glory. You can't get it from yourself. It has to be given from someone outside. Jesus is willing to give you his glory. He wants to fill you up. We're desperately trying to fill ourselves with glory. In our relationships, we're using each other. We want to get full off of each other. Jesus says, give that, give that up. Just let that go. I will fill you up. I have been made empty. I have emptied myself so that you can be full. You say, full, Jake? I can be full? Yes, absolutely and completely full. In Jesus Christ. We had no honor. Because of Jesus, we were made honorable. We were orphans. Because of Jesus, we have been adopted as sons and daughters. We had no righteousness, no holiness. We're full of sin. Because of Jesus, we have been declared blameless before the Father. This is the gospel. Jesus was treated the way we deserve, so that when we believe in him, we are treated the way that he deserves. We get Jesus' record. We get Jesus' merit. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus fills us up. If you think like Jesus thought, you'll be able to love like Jesus loved. And do you understand what God has done to love you and to love me? Do we really get it? I mean, it says it right here. It says, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, he gave up heaven. He gave up his heavenly existence for flesh and bone. And then he went so far as to die for each and every one of us. That's what love cost. That's what love really is all about. That is true love. If you think like Jesus thought, you'll be able to love like Jesus loved. So what does your love cost you? What does it cost you to love those around you? The relationships that you have around you, are they important? 
enough where you will willingly give up what you need to give up in order to love them. Jesus emptied himself so that we can be full. When you are full, it actually becomes easy to empty yourself for the people around you. It's a joy. It's wonderful. And you get to see them be glorified and honored and respected and loved. And you get to taste what Jesus did when he died for the whole world. Now, I want to submit to you a new definition for whatever, okay? Whatever. How about this? Whatever God asks of me, I'm going to do it. My answer is yes. How about this? Whatever it takes to save this marriage, I'm going to do it. What about this one? Whatever comes our way, I'm never, ever going to leave you. Or maybe this one. Whatever the cost to me personally, I'm going to love you. Or maybe whatever I need to give up for us to make it, I'm willing to give it up. If we think like Jesus thought, we'll be able to love like Jesus loved. Whatever. Let's pray. I want to invite you to consider your relationships right now. Have you been trying to get your need for glory filled up by others? In your friendships, I mean, think about your friends. Have you been using one another? We need to change our mindset. We're supposed to give our glory away. Give up our right to be at the center. Be humble. Maybe you're even at odds in a relationship right now. Humble yourself. Some of you are in marriages right now and you have been looking to your own interests. You've been considering yourself more highly than you ought. It's time for a mindset change. We have to think like Jesus thought. Jesus gave up his glory. He gave up his needs for the sake of others. We need to stop looking towards our own interests in our marriages. We need to consider our spouse more than ourselves. When was the last time you tried to see the needs of your spouse as more than your own? We need a mind shift. We need to humble ourselves. In your work environment, maybe you've been climbing that corporate ladder not caring who you've stepped on to get to the top. You've seen people as a means to an end to justify your own career. We need to change our thinking. We need a new way to see people. Jesus went low. He was freed up to go down. He humbled himself. You know, sometimes we say to God, we look up at him and we say, God, just love me the way that I am. But guys, humility is about acknowledging that we're not okay the way that we are. We don't need to be improved. We need to be totally rebuilt from the heart out. We need to come to the end of ourselves. What is true change? How do we accomplish true change? We have to trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible calls this repenting. It literally means to change your mind. Turn from the way you are living. You know, you may be here this morning and you are realizing now that you've never truly humbled yourself before God. Maybe you've never even heard how to have a relationship with Jesus. But I'm going to tell you this morning, it's very simple. 
You see, we give Jesus our lives and he gives us his life. We live through him. Scripture says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. What does it mean to confess someone as Lord, master, owner? Are you ready to make Jesus your master this morning? If you are, I'd like to invite you to pray a prayer with me right now.